You're listening to Canned Peaches from KBIA. I'm Nina Mukherjee Firstenau. We're trekking through farms, forests, and faraway kitchens, exploring five ingredients. Come with us to discover how communities locally and globally are intertwined through food. Chestnuts have phased out of American culture over the last hundred years or so. We don't think of them as a big part of our diet anymore, but yet farmers are selling out year after year. Somebody, somewhere, can't get enough of chestnuts. In this episode, we're going in search of the communities that can't get enough of chestnuts. We're going to find what it is that makes chestnuts a cultural cornerstone and how they could be making a comeback. Here in the studio, I have with me producer Lauren Hines Acosta. She reported on this episode. Hey, Nina. Hey. Hi, Lauren. So, Nina, I bet I can guess what you're thinking right now, at least when it comes to chestnuts. Oh, my goodness. Come on. It's that Christmas song, isn't it? (sighs) Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your Great job. I love it. (laughs) You were determined not to play that song, Lauren. What happened? Yes, I know I said I wasn't going to play it because I've heard this song way too many times reporting on this, but it supports my next point. Because chestnuts are usually harvested in the fall, right? They're on their last legs by winter. So roasting them for Thanksgiving or Christmas is a good way to make them last. I know you haven't had a chestnut in years, Mm -hmm. uh, same with me, but then you had to try some doing this episode. What does one taste like or even look like? So they're kind of sweet, which I wasn't expecting, and they're soft. So many nuts are crunchy. These are not Mm -hmm. that kind of nut. Mm -hmm. And so they make a really delicious kind of earthy, slightly sweet taste. They look like they have one side that's rounded and one that's flat because several of the nuts fit in one husk. Hmm, okay. Yeah, it seems not many people have tried a chestnut, but I think I know why. Uh, That Christmas song came out in 1946. Chestnuts were a common part of people's diets back then. But about 20 years before that song, American chestnut trees were mostly wiped out. That's right, because in the early 20th century, a fungal disease was accidentally brought over from Asia. Exactly. Chestnut trees grew along the Appalachian Mountains and supported the rural and indigenous communities in that area. But then the blight decimated the American chestnut tree population by 1925. And now chestnuts are kind of this cultural echo with that song being one of the few remaining traces. So no one eats chestnuts anymore? Not quite. Uh, When I called local chestnut tree farmers, they said they sell out every year and fast. They grow a different chestnut that can withstand the blight. But still, these farmers don't have enough left over to make other products like chestnut flour. So my question was, who's buying up all these chestnuts? Well, to find out, we went to Chestnut Charlie's back in July. The orchard was such a peaceful place with tall trees, with leaves that rustled in the wind, and on a hot day, there was really no better place to be. This organic chestnut farm is in Lawrence, Kansas, and it supplies Whole Foods. It's run by a couple, Debbie Milks and Charlie Novogratik. They gave us a tour of their farm. Okay, so next step. So now we've got um, piles of of, uh, bulb crates full of chestnuts draining here. You pick up one, this is the inspectors. They put the chestnuts on the, on the inspection tray. 
This is the inside of the nut? Of that the we're burrs, seeing? yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can, do you mind if I touch one? No, go ahead. Oh, it's almost, it feels like a little silky. A little yeah. Oily. Yeah. It's very smooth. Um, yeah, and it, it feels, I mean, these are now, you know, 10 months old and they've been in the refrigerator, so they're not nearly as nice as yeah. when they're fresh. But well, it kind of the way it fits your thumb is interesting. <laughs> a little worry stone. A worry stone. I, I could carry this. <laughs> it's yours. Could You're gonna have it. My new friend. <laughs> I understand you might have a few people locally who really like the fresh chestnuts and have been customers of yours. Mm -hmm. Tell me how that, how you found them, or how they found you. We just did outreach, 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 and spent hours explaining chestnuts. So, and, and the people who did find us who already knew chestnuts, this is what I always love. You know, we would listen to the story. Oh, my first experience with chestnuts, I was in London or Rome or Tokyo or, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, this kind of thing. And I always said, someday, someday, somebody's going to be in Paris and they're going to see a chestnut vendor and they'll go, oh, the first time I had a roasted chestnut was in Lawrence, Kansas. <laughs> I'm just waiting for that. <laughs> You've been at this a few years now, so yeah, yeah. So yeah, and and you know, you know, you have the group of people who uh, we call the best customers. We have are the people who speak English as a second language, people from Eastern Europe, people from Asia, all over uh, Korea, um, Japan, China and people from the Middle East, people from Turkey, they all know and love chestnuts and it's still in their culture. And so when we're discovered by those groups, the word spreads and um, yeah, we have a lot of... <laughs> and so why do you think it's mostly the groups of English as a second language communities? Is it because of this history of having the nuts more, free, more recently? Yeah, I, I, I definitely do. I think with the death of the American chestnut, we also lost that culture. So it seems it's immigrant communities in Missouri, the Midwest, and beyond that want chestnuts. Yes, and like Debbie said, it's particularly people from Italy, China, Japan, and Korea. I talked with Hejong Gu. She's Korean-American, and her husband is Chinese-American. Their family has been customers of Debbie and Charles for the last 11 years. You know, my my husband, he is, well, we both love, we both love food, um, but he's the one that always manages to find stuff. Um, it was, I can't remember if it was just research online or it might've been through um, some other, a Chinese friend, um, but he found Chestnut Charlie's and so we decided to order um and we're in we're in kansas city metro but we realized that you know going out to the orchard was only about 40 minute drives for us to go out to lawrence and so we um went out there and were able to pick up our chestnuts that first season so yeah like what is that relationship like for you well i mean it's sort of the it's what I've said about it's kind of that feeling of marking time. Um, and I always feel like when we, when we get there, it's like, okay, everyone is busy. I know they're busy with harvest and we gotta, and we have the kids and we gotta do all this thing. But then when we're there, we always slow down. We slow down when we're there. And I never feel like they're trying to rush me out to like do their things either. They want to, they want to share about, 
you know, how the harvest has been, how things are. And we just get to, we get to talk and hear a little bit about um, each other's lives in that little intersection of time. So like, what's a dish you remember making or a dish you always love to make with chestnuts? Well, I mean, for us, it's always been just eating, eating fresh roasted chestnuts. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also um, one of the, so in the, in the, it's called <clears throat> Chuseok, which is the fall lunar festival in Korea. Um, and they make rice cakes that are steamed with pine needles. Um, and one of the fillings that they'll use for that rice cake is chestnut. Yes. And just, it's amazing though, because it really is an intergenerational kind of thing and food memories, especially. So I have this memory of my great grandparents with the fresh chestnuts from their farm and then making the songpyeon with my grandparents, you know, making this traditional food this one time. Um, and then just the, the chestnuts we'd find wherever we could here uh, in the U.S. I actually grew up in Pennsylvania. So, um, but you can find it would often be Italian, it could be Italian chestnuts or it might be different kinds of chestnuts. Um, but we usually try to find some and have some at least a couple times a year in the fall. Yeah, my one question, and of course you've kind of been talking about this the whole time, but you know, how do you think chestnuts connect people? Well, I mean, here in America, there's always like the chestnuts roasting on an open fire. That mm-hmm. line is kind of an iconic line, but then, Again, it's like chestnuts roasting on the open fire has a different feeling for me personally as well. Um, Though, again, since we steamed and boiled in Pennsylvania, it wasn't the roasting, but it was still it was still the eating. It was the eating and the care. And my mom, you know, because I went again, when you're too little, you can't it's hard to get it out. (laughs) So she would be the one to go through the effort of doing the steaming and the peeling and preparing the preparing the meat to be able to eat it easily. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of love and care, I think, um, in preparing chestnuts for your loved ones. I thank you so much for the chance to sort of talk about my relationship with chestnuts and the traditions that are, you know, both in my past and in my future that are definitely connected to, to finding out about chestnut charlies and having them near, near where I am now. Wow, that sounds so nice. Time did feel a bit slower when we were there. When we visited the orchard, the trees felt as if they could be marking time, I'd say. It was so peaceful. Yeah, it really was. And Debbie from Chestnut Charlie's was nice enough to invite the team to cook chestnut soup with her in her kitchen. use chestnuts for a lot of people just tell me they just boil them and eat them you know this is one thing that i have found interesting in our travels that chestnuts are often not on restaurant menus um i they're eaten much in the home um you know with the families but you don't walk into a restaurant in tokyo and find some dish but you know that you know in all over the country you'll find lots of chestnut roasters and um you see the same thing in korea but you don't see them in a restaurant comfort food at home maybe so yeah 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 yeah. how would you say if you were going to describe how chestnuts how do chestnuts create community how do chestnuts oh boy well we talked a little earlier about the cultures across the world who still have chestnuts 
in their culture. Um, when we were at Whole Foods one time in Kansas City, this older woman walked up and we just gave her a roasted chestnut. We were also roasting. And as she was standing there, just tears came to her eyes and she gave Charlie this huge hug and she said, I'm from Iran and that's what we did as a child and thank you <laughs> for doing this. I mean, it was just so emotional. And, and the other thing is, so we have a harvest party at the end of our season and our helpers all come with their families or friends. We invite everybody and everybody gets chestnuts to um, experiment with, our workers. We give some and try different recipes and we're roasting around the fire. And our our uh, workforce, our helpers, are it's just such a diverse bunch of people. But you're realizing, once again, here's this really interesting community, you know, of people that are either just discovering it or, or love chestnuts and um and that crosses all cultures and it's work yeah 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 <laughs> so um and and uh, you know i'll say the f the final thing the year that we our crop failed and we were able to go to italy and we were at um we had been given some um contacts people who are chestnut growers there and um, Guido Bassi was his name. We were at his home. We had a wonderful meal. Um, and then the roasted chestnuts came out. And Guido said, in Italy, the roasted chestnuts are the last thing that comes out. And then the whole evening is, oh, I'm absolutely full, but oh, I'll take another chestnut. Mm -hmm. And oh, I just need another glass of wine. And then the conversation <laughs> just goes on and on and on. And it just, so just sort of gathering around that, it's... It's what they do. It's what they do. Yeah. Sounds like it's yeah. also what you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like that part. Um, so, okay. That's boiling a little too hard. We'll turn that down and let it simmer. Look at that. Look at that bubbling, wonderful Ooh. deliciousness. It smells good. It does. Can you smell it? So we'll get some spoons out so you guys can try chestnut soup. Mm, that is really good. <laughs> so smooth. Yeah. And it is slightly sweet. Yeah. Very creamy. You didn't see me throw any sugar in there. No. That is delicious. Yeah. I, I, would, I would take a bowl of that. <laughs> Anytime. With a Tupperware container of it. You're listening to Canned Peaches, and we're excited to introduce you to our sponsor, Greenleaf Solar, the local solar installation company. Greenleaf Solar is your trusted partner in the quest to lower your carbon footprint and trim those electrical expenses, catering to both residents and businesses. The best part, they offer complimentary consultations and a 10-year done-right guarantee on all installs. To embark on the journey towards a cleaner, more affordable energy future, Google Greenleaf Solar. Let Greenleaf Solar guide you in making a meaningful impact today. Let's take a moment to reflect how pervasive food is in our cultures. The image of food evokes more than taste. It gives insight to history, place, and identity. And literature often shows how connected food can be to those and more. For instance, in this case, chestnuts. Let's listen to an excerpt. 
Something marvelous is happening underground. Something we're just learning how to see. Mats of mycorrhiza cabling link trees into gigantic, smart communities spread across hundreds of acres. Together, they form vast trading networks of goods, services, and information. There are no individuals in a forest, no separable events. The bird and the branch it sits on are a joint thing. A third or more of the food a big tree makes may go to feed other organisms. Even different types of trees form partnerships. Cut down a birch and a nearby Douglas fir may suffer. In the great forests of the east, oaks and hickories synchronize their nut production to baffle the animals that feed on them. Word goes out and the trees of a given species, whether they stand in sun or shade, wet or dry, bear heavily or not at all, together as a community. Forests mend and shape themselves through subterranean snapses. And in shaping themselves, they shape, too, the tens of thousands of other linked creatures that form within it. Maybe it's useful to think of forests as enormous, spreading, branching, underground super trees. Richard Powers, The Overstory. So it seems chestnuts have taken us on a journey. We went to Lawrence, Kansas, and we explored Korean cuisine. But going back to what Debbie said about food traditions, there's another place where chestnuts are big, Italy. Yes, especially in the mountainous areas of Italy, where chestnut trees grow best. That's why we're heading there next. Ooh, okay, so what are we talking? Sorrento, Venice, where? More like St. Louis. Oh. Yes, it seems appropriate since historically the hill, which is a neighborhood in St. Louis, was founded by Italian immigrants in the early 1800s. I went with canned peaches producer Alex Cox to a restaurant in the Ritz-Carlton called Casa Don Alfonso. We cooked an authentic Italian chestnut dish with Nicola Pignatelli. He's the executive chef for all Don Alfonso 1890 restaurants. The sister restaurant in Sorrento, Italy, or it might be better named The Mothership, is being renovated. So he's been touring other restaurants in Canada and China. Luckily, we happened to catch him, or let's just say we made sure we would catch him while he was in town. So what did you end up cooking? We made duck breast, or I should say we hovered while he made duck breast with chestnut puree, caramelized chestnuts, saffron potato puree, spinach, beautiful red raspberry fruit sauce, and a duck stock. It looks like it's just uh, seared in uh, a light golden brown. It's making a lovely sizzle. And the duck needs uh, the chestnut, needs uh, the, the red fruit sauce, a little bit sweet. It's, the combination is, uh, it's, with the dish is so important. The chestnut is a good ingredient, it's strong, and you need the good ingredient for co combination. Uh, you imagine in the winter, the normally uh, you find the chestnut uh, from October until maximum in December. Uh, you imagine in winter the duck, the red fruit, uh, the spinach, the stock, you imagine the chestnut, you need the, the different meat of the uh, summer. I, I imagine this dish uh, for winter and for the tasting. When you have uh, chestnuts in the U.S., which are used to be very common but haven't been for a long time, but as an Italian, when you see chestnuts here, what does it mean? But I think it's good for, uh, I want to mean, the, uh, it's important in other countries, not this ingredient. This ingredient is particular, it's good. I think it's like nuts, but no, 
I think nobody knows these ingredients. I won't uh, share these ingredients in another country outside Italy. This recipe with, with duck and chestnuts, is this something that you would see traditionally? I remember my grandmother when I prepared this recipe, no? duck with the chestnut. Before my, my grandmother don't uh, remove the bones of the, the duck, but is stuffing with the chestnut with the potato. Put inside, close, yes, I cook for two hours. Now it's like a fine dining, you know? clean the, duck, the breast. I use the same ingredients, but I change the technique. So grandma's fine dining? Yes. Yeah, this is the plate is my gum. You're thinking of her. Always, always, always. Yes. Always, always. I think I'm, yeah. My first teacher in the kitchen is my grandmother. Yes, my first chef. But in Italy is uh, all the grandmother cook very 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 nice. All the grandmother. Oh wow, that sounded so fun. So what was it like being in the kitchen? Casa Don Alfonso has an open, bright kitchen with pretty blue tile work on one wall. Very little chaos. The staff moved efficiently. Aroma rises from pots there, and timers ding, if they ding at all, very softly. And once Chef Pignotelli finished plating the dishes, Alex and I got to sit and eat. It was in a plush dining room that opened from the kitchen. Here's a bit from our conversation. Really delicious. Okay, I'm trying the chestnut puree. It is absolutely delightful. Slightly sweet. You almost can taste the nuttiness, but it's very smooth and um, delicious with the combination of flavors he's got on the plate. So, um, what I wondered is the chef has taken a great effort in combining these flavors from images he remembers from his home country in Italy and the countryside, but also his grandmother and his grandmother's kitchen. So he combined chestnuts, caramelized chest, uh, sauce on chestnuts, also pureed chestnuts, pureed potatoes, raspberries, spinach, and this lovely wild duck. How does the chestnuts on this plate uh, play into the story that we just heard Chef tell us? I really think that the chestnut is like the linchpin of this entire thing because like the duck on its own flavorful delicious amazing but like once you start to mix things together the like beautiful taste of a chestnut really brings all of the flavors together it's not only beautiful but just the flavors play off each other really well yes definitely what i love seeing is when i understand why a chef has created a certain combination of flavors that's what's fascinating to me because he put it together for us just now in a story. He put together his grandmother, the fact that ducks in his area of Italy like eating raspberries and chestnuts. And then he put all that together, that memory of all of those things came together in this plate. And that is what makes it delicious, but also makes it mean something. When I taste it, I'm not just eating food. I'm eat it's that whole story that's behind it. Okay, I'm jealous. That sounded so amazing. It was tasty, Lauren. I can see why people love chestnuts. 
Well, the industry has been growing. The U.S. Department of Agriculture said the number of chestnut farms in the Midwest and Eastern U.S. increased by over 50% between 2012 and 2017. And chestnut farmers at the Northern Nut Growers Association are worried about meeting demand. Well, what's being done to meet that demand? I mean, more farms are popping up, and there are efforts to restore the American chestnut tree. It can be done through breeding the tree with other varieties that can withstand the blight, like the Chinese chestnut tree. Organizations in New York and California are trying to plant genetically engineered American chestnut trees. But some environmental organizations and a group of Native American tribes called the Haudenosaunee Confederacy are nervous about introducing these trees to the wild. They're worried the tree could reshape the shared environment that has adapted to life without it. They're basically saying just because we can doesn't mean we should. But scientists think there would be a greater cost to not having the trees. So could we see chestnuts coming back into the traditional American diet? I think that's a question better suited for food historian Ken Albala. He's a history professor at the University of the Pacific in California. I talked with him back in July. There are some very brave souls and scientists who are re-back-engineering re the, the American chestnut. I think it would be very interesting if in the next 20 years or however long it takes them, um, it becomes a very serious commercial venture um, because from every report I have heard, the American chestnut is smaller, but much tastier than the European variety. And people say, remember it, you know, the people who, who are still alive when these were growing, there are very few people left, uh, you know, who are still alive from who ate American chestnuts. And I think gastronomically, there's, a, there's great promise here. And if they become more common and ubiquitous and they're not limited to a tiny little season, I think chestnuts could be a you know, a new food resource. And, and think about the the um, potential of having something you don't have to plow into the, you know, it grows year after year. You don't have to do anything cultivation-wise. And it's fairly carbon neutral. You're not running tractors, you know, <laughs> you know. But I think tree foods, many of them have been seriously revived. I mean, you know, people eat walnuts and pine nuts and cashews, cashew butter, and, you know, they're, they're meat substitutes because they're high in fat and they're um, good, good food source and renewable and sustainable and all sorts of things. Chestnuts are not on that radar because they don't behave like most nuts. They, they're not, they're not, you know, hard and crunchy and snacky, you know, kind of thing that you can just eat out of a bag. But I think chestnuts are waiting for a comeback. Why do you think chestnuts are important? I mean, you did write a whole book on nuts, so. <laughs> chestnuts are important because they taste good. I mean, that's that's first and foremost. And they link to a really interesting history and, um, and they are almost forgotten. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you were to look at and ask how many people have eaten chestnuts lately, you know, it's, it's just not a common food. And I think it could be, you know, I think it'd be lovely if it were. I agree, it would be lovely. And even though chestnuts have faded from America's collective memory, people are rediscovering how this staple can bring communities together. And others have always known how chestnuts can evoke memories, even from thousands of miles away. Canned Peaches is produced by Lauren Hines Acosta, Janet Saidi, and me, Nina Mukherjee Firstenau, with production help from Yasha Mikawachuk and Alex Cox. 
The series is written by Lauren Hines Acosta and Janet Saidi. Our editor is Aaron Hay. Thanks to Lauren Hines Acosta for co-hosting this episode with me. Can Peaches is a project of the Missouri News Network at the Missouri School of Journalism, Vox Magazine, Harvest Public Media, and KBIA. Our engagement and outreach team is led by Jessica Vaughn Martin, Cassidy Arena, and Professor Kara Edgerson. Special thanks to Harvest Public Media's Maria Altman, Vox Magazine's Heather Isherwood, and the Missouri School of Journalism's Lee Hills Chair in Free Press Studies, Professor Kathy Kiley. Can Peaches is produced with support from Missouri Humanities and the Missouri Humanities Trust Fund. On Can Peaches, we're exploring how we're all connected through the food on our plates. For more episodes, go to kbia.org. And you can see more stories from Can Peaches at boxmagazine.com. I'm Nina Mukherjee Furstenau. Thanks for listening. See you next time.